Paul has begun his doctrinal teaching on our life with Christ and sanctification in that life. He began by making it clear that we are now to consider ourselves, to reckon ourselves dead to sin, our old man is crucified, and walk in newness of life. And he reminded these believers that their baptism was a picture of those things, that it wasn't just death, but also life, and that experience is supposed to be real in them. And he is doing that in, in a context of the question, okay, if where sin abounds, grace does much more abound, do we just sin and God is glorified by giving grace? And his point is, well, no, because you're dead to that life. You're freed from having to sin, and you are now given new life in Jesus Christ, and that new life is supposed to be working itself out in you. And he is going to continue to build on that and show that we don't live to sin, uh, nor does any... Um, uh, in the, in the sense that we don't live a constant life of sin, and now he's going to show that even if we're not living a constant life of sin, well, does any sin matter? Even if I just commit an act of sin, maybe I'm not living in some type of habitual sin that's constantly against God, what my life was before. Do even acts, if I just break the law on any level, does that even matter? And he's going to show them here that, yeah, even that matters. Because the question where we left off in 15 now is, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? So Paul's answer here is, Okay, we don't live in sin anymore, but what about an act of sin against the law? Does that matter? And Paul's answer is, of course it does. All sins matter, particularly because what he's going to show them here is our acts of sin show who we're serving. We become, our acts show who we're slaves to, who our real master is. And in this section, he's going to point out there's only two masters, God or sin, He's going to show there's only two places to present ourselves. We render ourselves to obedience or to sin, and that then has a particular flavor to it. The service rendered is dependent upon the master that I'm presenting myself to. And he's going to show that there's only two harvests for those service. One is uncleanness and death, and the other is holiness and eternal life. So again, these are, these are not just hypotheticals. These are the types of conversations Paul would have with people as they're trying to figure out, okay, what does grace mean in my life? As a Christian, now I'm saved. I put faith in the Lord. I know I'm justified in him. My penalty is washed away, but I still see this sin in my life. Does it matter at all? How, how does that work out? And Paul's point is, yeah, it does. We still need to think about these things. Any sin matters, even though we're not under the law. He says again in 16, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are the slaves of the one whom you obey, whether sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness? 
So our actions show our obedience to one master or another shows we're serving someone. And they show that no man is free in the absolute sense. We've been set free from the bondage of sin, but we're not free to be the boss, right? You might feel like you're a boss somewhere, but there's only one actual boss, and that's still God. And we as creatures are still in service to a creator or to something outside the creator, which puts us in service to sin, whether it's ourselves or someone else. So we're free to choose which master we would give ourselves to. But Paul is saying God has set us free not to serve ourselves or to serve sin, but to serve him. That, that is what he wants in the end. We're placed under grace so that, as he said in 15, you're not under the law but under grace. We're placed under grace so that we can freely live in Christ Jesus. He's given us a great place to serve him, a place of grace where imperfect people can serve him, can walk with him, can continue to give themselves to him. We're not under the law, Paul would say in Galatians 5.18, but if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. We've been given his Spirit. We've been given newness of life. And our, our encouragement is to obediently present ourselves to him because it will lead to, notice he says, righteousness. Don't you, don't you know, he says, that your actions still matter because what you do shows who you're serving. And those those actions that you have, the service you render to the master, will be like the master, and they will produce fruit. One will be to sinfulness, or one will be to righteousness. And you and I are encouraged to be seeking righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. Over and over and over again, for the, the new believer in Jesus Christ, there should be a hunger for rightness with God and man. Because that's what he's like. And even though we're in service to God, it is not a slavery that's burdensome. He's going to admit here in a little bit, okay, even my illustration, it, it can't live up to the fullness. It's a human illustration I'm using here. Because you and I were made to serve the Creator. So we're only free in doing what we were actually made to do. If I, if I take a fish and pull it out of the ocean and throw it on the land and say you're free, it's not going to be very good for it. Or I take a bird and throw it in the water and say you're free, it's not very good for it. Or we go up in a space shuttle and I kick you out in outer space and say you're free, it's not very good for you. You understand, if I, if I have to live out my life in an environment I'm not made for, that's not real freedom. And human beings were not made to be slaves to sin. We were made to serve God, our Creator. We were made to please Him. And a human being actually finds their freedom in what they were created to do. You'll find who you really are in service to Him. So he's not ashamed to say, we should give ourselves to him or be his slaves or be obedient to him 
because he knows that's actually the best thing for us. And it's what we were made to do. And it's where we would actually find ourselves. And Paul wants these people to recognize, look, this is, this is what you're called to do. This matters in your life. Even though there's grace there for you, you can't just give yourselves to sin then because you become a slave or a servant to sin. Notice he acknowledges that's not who they are in 17. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of, of sin, right, from Adam's family tree, which we talked about, all you had was life that was separated from God, you were those things. He says, Yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. His whole point is, that is what you used to be. Now you're something different. You've been set free. God has changed you wonderfully. Paul sees this, this change of service of masters as true of these Roman believers, not because they tried so hard. Notice he says God is the one who is to thank them, who they should give their thanks to. And he's given us the grace to obey him from the heart and to obey in a new form of doctrine. So in the past they were slaves. That was true. All of us, slaves to sin outside of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, he who sins is a slave to sin. sin. Sin is so deceitful because people, people want just a little bit. They, they want a little bit of attention, a little bit of alcohol, a little bit of relief from those drugs, a little bit of sexual sin. But what happens is you become enslaved to that thing. And it grows and it grows and it grows. And you can't. You give in to a little anger, a little insecurity, a little pride, a little greed. And Satan doesn't trace down the line and tell you, oh yeah, this is where I'm taking you. He's patient. He can get a finger hold in the life and wait 20, 30 years because he knows where it'll take a person. And the person who sins becomes a slave to that sin. They become in its service. It becomes the master. We think because we took a little bit, we can handle it. And over and over and over again in human nature, what Jesus says is true. No, we become slaves to that thing. It takes us places where we never wanted to be or go or intend. That was what we were all like. You were. But now he says something has fundamentally changed in them. Now you're set free from that bondage, and you've begun to obey from the heart. Uh, one of the commentators I was reading talked about a, a young lady who had just been saved, and a bunch of her friends came to her and trying to get her involved in these things that she was doing before she was saved. And she just said, no, no, guys, no, I'm not going to go. And, and they said, what, like, what is going on with you? And her response was simply just um, that, this establishment is under new management. <laughs> right, I, li I like that little phrase. Right? That, was her, that was her point. There's been a fundamental change here. Right? Totally new owner is in town. There's a new master. This establishment has new management now. It was, it was given over to a different master before. Now there is a heart reality, something that's inner, and that heart reality is made evident 
by the service to the new master, which is the outer. It's the same thing that he's talked about earlier in terms of their baptism and inner spiritual work works itself out in true spiritual life. And this is what God is looking from all of us. He's looking for obedience from the heart, a change that can only come from the supernatural. He doesn't just want correct religious rites or ceremonies or doctrine. Like Those things need to be there. But he wants all of our service to come from a heart that is, as he said earlier in the chapter, alive to God in Jesus Christ our Lord. God sees things so differently. He, he doesn't care about a person who's sitting in church whose heart is a million miles away from him. I've, I've been in churches where they have musicians come up uh, and they, they can play really well and sing really well. And people hire these musicians to come in for their worship services and the people are totally unsaved. As if God is sitting there watching an unsaved heart praise him that has no reality with him really happy about that. Like, we, we can so easily lose what God is looking for in the reality of our life, and we forget that God is looking for a supernatural life that can only come from Him. And He doesn't just want us to do things. He wants us to be something that produces a certain type of fruit and life. And that can only come from obedience from the heart. And Paul says, that happened to you. You didn't have that before. You were enslaved to a heart that was wicked. Then God changed you. New management came in. Now you can choose to obey him from the heart. And it looks like obeying, he has this interesting phrase here, that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Your Bible might say entrusted. The idea there is um, you were handed over to this thing. It wasn't them trying really hard to live up to the standard. It was them being given to the reality of it. They weren't trying to grasp it. They were already in it, in a sense. Uh, the language has a picture of metal being heated up and poured into a mold and then taking on the form, that shape of the mold. And what, what he's talking about here is he's saying the Christian life, there's so many other ideas about it, particularly in the world that we live in, but Jesus had an idea about the Christian life. And when he saves a person and sets them free from sin, he wants it to look like something. There is a pattern to it. And there is a teaching that conform with that particular pattern. Jesus, when he was standing there, resurrected, talking to his disciples in the Great Commission, said, go into all the world, preach the gospel, teaching them the things that I commanded you. There was a particular set of teachings. In the book of Acts, it's called the Apostles' Doctrine. Paul talks about it, having given it to the people in terms of the pattern that we live for you, the traditions that we pass to you, the pattern of teaching that Paul talked to Timothy about to pass on to other men who would be faithful. There is the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. There is, there is a form of Christian life 
that they wanted to see. And it relates much more to the spiritual reality of things than it does to the outward forms. Man wants to connect it to all of the outward forms. And it'll have an outward expression. But it'll look like Jesus Christ. It'll look like following a particular master. Its fruit will be to holiness and righteousness and eternal life. Paul, I think, describing the same thing when he talks to the Ephesians, he's giving them a warning saying that they should no longer walk like the Gentiles. Their life shouldn't be molded like that, people who don't know God. In Ephesians 4, he says this, verses 20 to 24, You have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus. There's a particular thing. He says, you didn't learn Christ like that. Christ looks like something in your life. You've been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. That's what it looks like. It doesn't look like your old man. It looks like what you've learned about Jesus Christ. The new man has the mind of Christ, thinks about things the way Christ thinks about things, sees things the way Christ sees things, judges things the way Christ judges things, calls true what Christ calls true. It's created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. He says, you've been poured into that. It's a new wineskin. It's not an old one. It's something new that God is doing. And now we do, we live what God pleases from the heart. He said, you've obeyed that. What you were delivered, what you were given, you were handed over to this thing and you, you molded right into that. That new life from a new master. And there's, there's no fear in that. Augustine famously said, love God and do what you please. Because if you really love God, you won't have to worry about anything somebody would do. I keep all the commandments then. I care about what he says. I'd be like him. And Paul is encouraging them to live out this particular type of life. You've been set free from sin. You are now, he says, a slave of righteousness. You've got a new master. And it looks like something different than it used to look like. Verse 19, he's going to admit, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. He admits there's something crude in his illustration here of a slave and a master, uh, but it was very important. It was very powerful, particularly because it was likely that there were believers there that were slaves, and there were so many slaves in the Roman Empire, and that image would bring up all types of emotions and thoughts for people. Unlike those, many of those slaves, though, we get to pick our master. We've been set free. Now, free from bondage, we can choose, I can serve myself in sin, or I can give myself to him as my master, to righteousness, to obedience, and we should choose Jesus as a master, giving, notice, our bodies over to obedience. And as a master, 
He gives us righteousness. And Paul warns that we shouldn't abuse this liberty we have as believers. He wants to make it clear again. There's only two masters, God or sin. There's not a middle ground. You're, you're not just living in the world vibing until you choose who you're going to follow. You are making that choice by who you surrender your body to, you present your members to every single day. What you think about, what you talk about, what you love, what you spend your money on, what we give ourselves to. Our time, the most precious thing we own, because when it's gone, it's gone. Who have we presented those things to? Ourselves or to him? And there's a constant reality that, okay, Lord, who am I giving myself to? Who am I surrendering myself to? If I surrender myself to sin, that matters because I make then sin my master. Even though I'm forgiven, even though there's grace, that matters because he should be my master. He has set me free so that I could be under him now, given to him, surrendering myself to him. And it begins to look like something. Now, 20, he says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, for what fruit did you have then in the things of which you were now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Paul reminds them what it was like before they were saved, describing all our lives as slaves to sin, free of righteousness, and fruitless. That's kind of a bad combination there. He wants them to see, like, what, and what good was in your service to sin anyway? What, what did it actually get you? Other than, notice he says, Shame. What did it bring in our lives? All it brought was shame. If we think back to who we were outside of Christ, all of us can easily become ashamed. Two, two of the most righteous men in the Bible, and particularly the men that we think would be righteous in their youth, both Job and David, both pleaded with God not to hold the sins of their youth against them. They thought back, and they could find something to be ashamed of. I think Paul the Apostle could very easily look back in his life and be ashamed of things. That's why I think he spoke about the grace of God so much. He had experienced it and loved it. He could forget those things which were behind, press forward to those things that were ahead. That was the work of Christ. He was blessed in those things. But if we stop for a second and we think... It's easy to become ashamed. Augustine, in his famous book, The Confessions, where he's talking about his life, uh, one of the funny things he writes about is he writes a story about being young and how ashamed he was about running with a bunch of friends and like stealing pears and vandalizing this person's like pear tree. Now, you think a guy who was so spiritual, that wouldn't be something that he kind of brought up or that stuck with him. But he says this about it, and I find this interesting. He said, So when they say, let's go, let's do it, we are ashamed not to be shameless. These people shamelessly giving themselves a sin, and he said, I found myself ashamed not to be shameless with them. How sinful was I? He's like, I didn't even like pears. 
I didn't even care about this stuff. What? Literally, I was ashamed not to be as shameless as them. And he just looks back in his life and says, like, Lord, what was I doing? All, it was just shame compounded outside of you. What was the fruit of those things? I surrendered myself to this master sin. And what even came from it? How does it all work out in the end? It produces death, he says. What's, what's the end of those things? But, he says in 22, now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What, he, he twice points it out. What is the end of those things? Death. And again, what is the wages of sin? Death. He wants them to get this here. He says, that's not you. You have your fruit to eternal life in 22. The, the only fruit outside of this is death. If I commit myself to this master, what is going to happen? But if I commit myself to the right master, well, then there's growth. I see that I have fruit. The Bible warns us about being unfruitful. We shouldn't be, Peter says, barren and unfruitful. So add to your faith, add to your faith, add to your faith. But that fruit should come and it should grow. Now, this should be happening in all of our lives. There should be a greater and greater, it's not a one and done thing where I present my members to the Lord and then I'm finished. Uh, Don McClure was just here Sunday, uh, Sunday famously said once, I, gave, I thought I could surrender my whole self to God. I didn't know he was going to take me one piece at a time. <laughs> and there is a reality where every, every day we grow in our sanctification. I'm surrendering more of my mind. I'm surrendering more of my life. I'm surrendering more of my heart. I'm presenting more of myself of who I am to him. And we grow in those things. And that's fine. And we're all on different levels of that. Right? And we need to give some people space. Sometimes we could be a little hard on it, right? If I'm, if I'm a gang member and I have murdered people and I come into church and get saved and I get in a fist fight in the parking lot, that's actually progress. <laughs> you understand? Like, I'm actually doing a little better there. So if you, you have a stripper get saved and she comes in here and she's dressed immodestly, that, that's still probably progress in her life. Have heroin addicts, God works in their life, and they get saved, and maybe they're outside smoking weed, and they think they're doing a lot better. Maybe they are, and then they go to cigarettes, they're like, ah, oh, that's not really right either, and they're smoking cigarettes, and then they become coffee addicts, like a lot of other people, and then we think that's acceptable, right? So... There's, there's a reality where we see this growth in people's lives and we need to give people space to say, okay, God's, God's going to sanctify them. And sometimes we could be a little hard in the beginning, but it's whether that life is there, whether that, that progress is actually happening. Is, is there a reality where I'm surrendering myself to him? I'm presenting myself to him. And he's working in each of our lives. And that looks a little bit different for all of us. And the fruit of that will be good fruit. Sometimes we want to rush the process or, or define what the fruit should look like. And particularly with young believers, we need to give them a little space to be able to grow in those things. Now, certainly there's always a question, well, what if there's no growth? 
What if it seems like there isn't progress in those things? Uh, I think simply questionable sanctification brings up questionable justification. That's what the Bible teaches. If I say I have my sins forgiven, but I don't also say I have new life in Jesus Christ to not be a bond slave to sin, there's a conflict in my profession and in my life. Because God claims that both come together. So where there is the fruit, there is also the root. Both of those need to exist. Now there could be a little time for the root to be there and the fruit to grow. That's where we need to give space. But there won't be one without the other. And it's important for us to have this reality working in our lives because outside of that, what do we have but, he says here again twice, death. That's what we have. Outside of him, there's no real fruit. There's nothing that works righteousness. There's no obedience from the heart. He hasn't changed us in a way that causes us to see him differently. And it all plays out eternally. Sin brings shame. It bears bad fruit. It ultimately brings death. And there's a lot of ways the Bible speaks of sin, but they do all come to that same end that he says there at the end of 21. The end of those things is death. If sin is a way, it leads to death. If sin is a seed, its harvest is death. If sin is a conception or a birth, the child is death. If sin's a king, its reign is death. If sin's a work, its wages are death. The Bible's clear about what we get when we sin what the outcome ultimately of sin is. So can we sin freely because we don't live under the law? Paul's point is certainly not. There's no such thing as little sins because there's no little God to sin against. It's all serious. There wasn't a little death on the cross to pay for little sins. God takes anything seriously is the death of his son on the cross. Takes that very seriously. And if the cross tells us anything, it's that sin's pretty hard to deal with, even for God. And so Paul says, can, can that happen easily? No. Don't you understand? What, the, what is the end of sin? It's death. It's not something easy. It's difficult. And particularly... The sting of sin is death. People become, uh, the Bible says, in fear of death. Death, as Job says, is the king of terrors. Hebrews tells us that those who uh, live are in fear of death all their lifetime. They're subject to the bondage of death. Right? We just saw that, particularly with COVID. I think for for first time, particularly for America, people were actually in a position where they felt like I could die. Most of the time people walk around and don't actually believe that that's something that could happen to them or they're shocked if they're in that scenario. And to be put in a position where people have to think about, okay, what if this costs me my life? That kind of changes everything, right? 
Changes the way I think about God, about church, about family. We saw those things kind of play out where people had to think. All of a sudden, death became real in a moment. And what the Bible wants us to think is death has wages for those sin, excuse me, has wages for those who serve it. There's there's a price to pay. And that payment is death. And if I ignore that, I'm putting myself in a dangerous position. Right? Like people people outside of God, they flee death, but they give themselves to sin. They would be smarter to flee sin because otherwise their length of days, as Romans already said, is just stacking up for them wages, a bill. Paul's saying, don't, don't you understand? There's only two ends of this. There's only two masters. All our decisions, all our actions, all of the matter, and the wages of sin is death. And, and it's going to have to be paid. And people don't like to think about it. And your friends can hang out with you. You can have your bro and beers and enjoy all the sports and you could go and give yourself sexually to whatever you want, and people can give themselves over to sin, but when you come to die, none of those friends can help you in that moment. And everybody recognizes there's a price to pay, ultimately. But what this says is there's also a gift to be given. Not free in the sense that it wasn't paid for. It was actually a very costly gift. But it was paid for by the giver. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God through Christ Jesus our Lord, that's eternal life. Why, why don't you want to serve that master? Why do you want to serve a master that's going to exact wages that you know you can't pay. Right? If I had two businessmen, and both those businessmen knew there was going to be a bill to pay, and I had one businessman that sat down and looked at his life and looked at the time he had and looked at how much work he needed to put in, figured it out, and got it done in a short period, he would not be worried about when that bill came. He could go and live his life, and he wouldn't be afraid of it. And when it came, he'd be ready to pay. But if I have another other businessman just goes around and tries to ignore it, hopes things come out, doesn't really plan for it very well, yeah, he lives in fear of that thing his whole life. For the Christian, death is something very different for us. I can look at it differently. Paul would say, just in Romans 14, if we live... We live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or we die, we're the Lord's. It's like, Bill's already paid for me. I worked out this issue a long time ago. So when it comes, it comes and it's in his timing. If I die and go to be with Christ, it's far better. The Christian doesn't need to ignore the reality of these things. It's, we've already dealt with the, with the issue. We have an answer. I've received the gift that's paid for these things. So I'm not worried about them. And I'm giving myself to the one 
who took care of it. Right? Christ already died for me. It's more important that Christ died than that I'm going to die one day. Like, I, I needed him to die and rise again. So now, now I, that other part can be taken care of. Because if he, if he didn't die and rise again, then, then it would be rough. I'd have no hope. But he took care of that. So all of those choices we make in life, who we give ourselves to, Paul says they all matter and they all have an ending. And you all know this. One master has a certain type of fruit in life. The other master has a certain type of fruit in life. Who are we serving? Or, he says as he goes on in 7, is he going to tie in a final kind of argument here? Or, uh, do you not know this the, the word there immediately connects us back to the current discussion, particularly 6.14 when he said, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law but under grace. He's still building on this same idea here. He's going to give us uh, an illustration in the first three verses here and then an application in 4 through 6. And Paul wants to explain how those under the law are released from it by sharing in the death of Christ and how they're brought into a new covenant. He's going to say, you you don't have to be under the law anymore because you're brought into a new covenant. And he's going to illustrate that by the reality of death breaking the legal bond of a marriage. So he says, we'll read down a little bit, or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she is married to another man. Here, Paul uses, and I think this is important too, Two times he says, do you not know brethren? He uses that there in three. And then in four again, he's going to say, therefore my brethren. Because he knows here what he's talking about is a huge step for both the Jews and the Gentiles. The, the law, particularly the Jewish law, was such a big deal for them. And for the Jew to try to give them an idea that you are no longer under the law there was always the fear that that Jew then would be accused of spiritual adultery. Because in the Old Testament, to leave the law, to leave that form of doctrine, that particular wineskin, and to live your life a different way would be spiritually, spiritual adultery. I'm leaving the covenant I have with God and going to another covenant. And, and that, was, that was something no Jew wanted to be accused of. It was the prophets rebuke many times to the Jews. But Jesus made it clear the law and the prophets were till John. This law, the Old Testament law, was annulled in the sense of the way that they were now under it and given to it. We looked at that in Acts 15, 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 13, Ephesians 2, 14 and 15, Colossians 2, 13 and 14, Hebrews 7, 12. It's on the tape. If you want to look all that up. So there's plenty of places in Scripture that talk about that. But 
the, there was that constant fear there, and Paul knew that that was going to be a powerful thing for the Jew to not want to give himself fully to the message of Christ and to kind of keep the law and follow some form of it. You know, even Peter had to be rebuked at one point by Paul. So it was this, we, we, it's hard for us to understand how powerfully uh, cultural and important this kind of idea of being under the law was for these Jews. And he's going to show, so this argument here is going to show them that they didn't need that, and that was very powerful for them. And it was powerful for the Gentiles too, because even though they might not have thought themselves the same way as under the law, there was a constant pressure from many in that early church to really be saved. You also had to be under the law. One of the main things Paul thought was some form of now the Gentiles are saved, they've heard the message of Christ, they've accepted Christ by faith, they're being pulled back under the law in one form or another. You still need to be circumcised, though. You still have to keep the dietary law. The Judaizers were hunting Paul down and infiltrating all his churches. It's the whole book of Galatians he's writing to them. There's this, there was this constant kind of pressure, even for the Gentile community, to be brought back under this. And even today, there are still groups out there that, that try to proselytize mostly people who are already saved and put them under some form of Jewish law to be more righteous or really follow Jesus. And you may know some who have been caught up in those things. So when Paul is saying, brethren, my brethren, he's saying, listen to me, guys. He, he loves these individuals. This, this might sound simple to us, but it was so important for them to hear that they were now no longer under the law. So, uh, you know, there's, there's always that segment that is going to think that without an outward law, there's no way people can be holy. There's, there's got to be some conformity to some, some outward law for actual sanctification and holiness. And Paul knew personally that is not true at all. It's not license, but it's not legalism either. There is another way. And that way was a supernatural new birth and life from Jesus Christ and obedience to the Holy Spirit in that new life. And Paul knew that's the only way for people to actually be changed, to be under grace, forgiven of sin, and given new life in Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that worked. And it was difficult at times. And he was patient with churches to the Galatian church, he would literally say in Galatians 4, My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ be formed in you, for I have doubts about you. Yeah, worried about them. You're, you're trying to find the life of God in a way that he hasn't designed. You're going back to the law. You're going back to these things that you're never going to find the life that he's offered to you in. And he was worried about them. C.H. McIntosh, in his book, Short Papers, says this, Surely a divine end can only be gained by pursuing a divine way. Now God's way of giving us deliverance from the dominion of sin is by delivering us from under law. And hence, all those who teach that Christians are under law are plainly at issue with God. 
Paul's trying to make something clear here, something that would be a simple illustration they would understand. But I just want to give you a sense. It was so powerful for them to recognize how they were now supposed to live out their lives in Jesus Christ. So again, he gives a simple illustration. Notice verse 1 again. Don't you know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is from re- released from the law of her husband. They're in a covenant. They're married. They're legally married until one dies. Now, that person is now free from that covenant under the law. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so she is no adulteress, though she marries another man. They would understand this, Jews and Gentiles. Even the the Roman sexual morals of the day, if you were a Roman citizen that married another free Roman citizen and you were legally married, they almost didn't care what you did outside of that marriage. I could be a Roman male, and if I slept with a prostitute or a slave or a young boy slave, it was almost just seen as okay. But the minute I went outside of my marriage and, mar- and committed adultery with another married Roman citizen, legally married Roman citizen, now that was considered adultery and that was severely looked down upon in their day. Of course, the same in the Jewish culture. That was more strict in those things. So everybody that he's writing to would understand this. The law for that married couple held them in that covenant until a person died. When a person died, they were then free from that covenant. Even today, people get this. We wouldn't have like 30 seasons of Dateline if people didn't get it because they're always trying to murder their spouse for money because they know they're legally tied to their spouse, right? So, gentlemen, if your wife takes out a long, huge life insurance plan against you, watch out. Right? That's like we get that. People understand that nowadays. So now that he's kind of stated the simple illustration, he's going to bring the application in verse 4. He says, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. There's a little bit of confusion as to how the illustration works out. Some people see the husband as the law, which is not Paul's point, because verse 1 tells us the law is over the man. So even if it was the man and the man died, the law is still there over him. He's speaking of something over the man. And secondly, the Bible never talks about the law dying. What Paul says there is, you have become dead to the law. The law is not dead to them. They are dead to the law. And they've become dead to the law through the body of Christ. In the same way Jesus took our sins, he has paid the price of the law. If anybody dies, is Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. 
For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. And they, in the same way they saw their sins all paid for in Christ, the issue of the law was settled in Jesus Christ for them. You've become dead to the law. Now, he says, you're free. You're not under this old covenant anymore. You're free to marry another, to enter into a new covenant, a new marriage, and it's one that he says with, is with him who was raised from the dead at the end of four, that we should bear fruit to God. This marriage bears fruit, this new marriage, this new covenant, and it bears fruit that's acceptable to God. This is a powerful point here for them. In the past, notice five, when we were in the flesh, sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. In the, in the past, he's saying, we had this conflict, which he's going to build on here in, in a little bit. But his point is simply this. My flesh wanted something, and the law demanded I not have that thing. The problem was, my flesh was stronger. And so I just constantly find myself in conflict with the law, bearing fruit to death. Negative things coming out of it. Me deserving of death. Yet, something changes. Six. Again, but now, we have been delivered from the law. Fact. Delivered there, same word as in 6.6, six, as in 7.2. Paul loved this deliverance. He wasn't just stating it. Paul loved this. He experienced it personally. His old life was a life of external submission to outward laws. And it was a life of frustration because he had nothing internal to back that up or that desire. He was just constantly in a battle with himself. Now that's changed because there's a newness of the spirit. So our desires come not out of religious obligation. It's not the I have to, but the I want to. God gives us new life. Our very spirit becomes the center of our motives to serve him. He says, we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. In every Christian, there is sanctification because there's something new in you. Again, it's Christ in you. His spirit, his life, that says, yes, I want to be obedient. Yes, I desire righteousness. Yes, God is my Father. Yes, I want to commit myself, give myself, surrender myself to Him. Is it perfect? Of course not. But even when we're imperfect, we want to keep His commandments, like confession, repentance, praise in His grace, moving forward in faith and obedience. There's something in us that is new. I was talking to a gentleman once who was down here. He was sharing with us just God's work in his life. And he actually said this uh, kind of himself. He said, you know, I grew up in Christian circles and stuff. And he said, it was always, he says, it was kind of like the Simon Says game where it was always somebody saying to me, Jesus says, Jesus says, do this. Jesus says, do this. Jesus says, do this. But he said, it all changed one day when Jesus actually said it to me. <laughs> and it was Jesus says, not Simon says, right? 
there was new life. Changed everything. The master that saved him from death gave him the gift of eternal life. It wasn't just an old letter. It wasn't just some rules to follow. It was a person to follow. A form of life that he had been delivered to. And that's what changed everything. And whether you're somebody who's a total pagan that doesn't know anything about God that gets saved out of the world and has to learn this, or whether you're a person who grows up as a Christian in a Christianese world with even right doctrine, you still need to learn this. And there has to be this reality in our lives that we don't just serve and surrender ourselves to him because of an old letter that tells us to. It's because of a new spirit. It's because of Christ in us. And if you're thinking, man, I don't know if I have that, well, ask him for it. Examine yourself, Paul says. See whether you actually be in the faith. This is what it is. And for those of us who have it, we should look at it and say, man, God be thanked that this is where you have me, Lord. And teach me how to commit myself to you. This is the ultimate promise of the old covenant, that God was going to take their stony hearts out and give them a heart of flesh, that he would pour out his spirit in them, that he wasn't going to give them a new set of external laws. Here's 47 things that you have to keep and do those things. Instead, he was just going to put his spirit in them. Say, be obedient. Walk in grace. Follow me. Present yourself to me. And that life will change. You are dead to sin. How can we live in sin anymore? Well, okay, we don't. It doesn't matter if I sin at all, if I break the law, if I'm under grace. Of course it still matters. Because whoever I submit myself to, that person is my master. And the fruit is going to come out. And it's going to come out to holiness and eternal life or uncleanness and death. And I'm not under an old covenant anymore. Not under the law, the deadness of the letter, a whole bunch of commands that I just follow with no help. I have been given a new spirit. I'm dead to those things in Christ. And I'm part of a new covenant. And I get to walk in the freedom of those things. It was a powerful message for them. And it's a powerful message for us. And it was the blood of Christ that made those things available. And it's the blood of Christ that allows us to continue to walk in them freely. So whatever he's saying to you, listen to it. And if you've been too busy to hear what he's saying to you, then you just pause. Take your life, put it before him and say, Lord, I'm presenting myself to you again. Let's start over here. Whatever you have to say about my life, I want to follow you. I want to commit myself to you. I want the fruit of my life to be to holiness and eternal life, not to uncleanness and death, not a part of those things anymore. You've given me grace to step away from them and to choose you. Let's stand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these things. We thank you for your patience with us. Lord, we know 
even as Paul builds on this, he's going to talk about that conflict. And you know there's conflict in us. But Lord, you are so gracious to give us what we need to tend us, to mold us into your image and likeness. You're the potter, we're the clay. And we don't want to resist you, Lord. We want to submit to you. And we thank you for the work that you've done in our lives. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that we could walk humbly with you in faith and obedience. And Lord, I pray for anybody here tonight that might be sitting here and realizing that they don't have new life in you, that you would grant them that in your grace, that you would make them new creations in Christ Jesus and set them free, Lord, from the bondage of sin and the fear of death and the burden of the law. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.